When we talk about the Internet Research Agency, we're talking about mimetic propaganda. We're talking about long-term multi-year influence. Uh, we're talking about content that is inherently participatory. The entire point of creating those memes is to get people to share them. And so it's a very social first operation where the entire goal is to create information, to create emotionally resonant content and to make people want to share it. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, January 23rd, 2020. It's another episode of Lawfare's Arbiters of Truth series on disinformation. This week, Alina Polyakova and I spoke with Renee DeResta, the technical research manager at the Stanford Internet Observatory. Renee has done fascinating work on how technology platforms and algorithms interact with false and misleading narratives, ranging from misleading information on health issues to propaganda pushed by the Islamic State and the Russian government. I also have an exciting announcement to make on the part of Lawfare. Right now, the United States Senate is hearing arguments in the impeachment trial of President Trump, the third such trial in the nation's history. But most people can't sit and listen to the trial all day. So Lawfare and Goat Rodeo are cutting down the hearings into a podcast. No bluster, no repetition. Just one or two hours of argument telling you what you need to know about the day's events. You can find it in the podcast feed for our previous podcast on the Mueller investigation, The Report. Just search for The Report in your podcast feed and wait for new episodes every evening while the Senate impeachment trial continues. With that, on to the show. It's the Lawfare Podcast, episode 499, Renee DeResta on disinformation and misinformation from vaccines to the GRU. So, Renee, thank you so much for joining us. I figured we'd start off, you know, just by asking you a little bit about your own work. Uh, you you moved to studying disinformation after working in venture capital, which is an unusual career move. So what sort of led you to change course? Yeah, so I left VC to start a company, actually, in supply chain logistics. But that's a whole other story. And so that was what I was doing. I uh, I had my first baby in 2013. And around 2014, I had to do that process where you put your kids on school lists. This is a thing that you have to do in San Francisco. It's unavoidable. Um, and so I pulled up the local school vaccination rates because California makes that information publicly available. And I was <laughs> I was horrified, actually. And, you know, being a new mom, I had seen a lot of the anti-vaccine misinformation on Facebook. Um, I did some things like I made my own baby food and I did some things that were like more kind of um, natural parenting, quote unquote. Um, I hate that term. But uh, but what wound up happening was that, you know, as I engaged with certain groups on Facebook, I started getting referred into anti-vax groups and I started getting referred into a whole range of these highly conspiratorial pages. And so I was looking at that as a, this is sort of a weird thing that's happening. Uh, and then at the same time, I was looking at the local vaccination rates and I felt like something was really off. So the Disneyland measles outbreak happened shortly after. And all of a sudden I had this weird night job as the uh, co-founder of an advocacy organization called Vaccinate California, because me and a couple friends had decided that we were going to try to work with the California state legislature to eliminate vaccine opt-outs in California. And the bill was called SB 277. And I did it just as a passionate parent. Um, you know, I have a background in data science. I had run marketing at startups. I knew how to run Facebook ads. 
Uh, and so we just threw up a Facebook page and we decided that we were going to create a group called Vaccinate California to, to grow a counter movement to the anti-vaccine movement in California with this very particular legislative outcome. And so this is actually relevant <laughs> because what I wound up doing was I did a lot of the opposition research, which involved mapping the networks on Twitter and understanding how anti-vaccine activists were networking, were growing the message, and were really dominating share of voice uh, on Twitter, and how completely out of the conversation and entirely different kind of conversational clusters and networks the pro-vaccine and the pro-public health groups were and how much smaller and less developed they were. And so I started looking at ways in which uh, social platform algorithms were kind of inadvertently amplifying a lot of the sensationalist health misinformation. And I wound up starting to write about it in the context of Facebook's recommendation engine, Facebook's group recommendation engine, uh, Google search, um, Twitter conversations. And so it became kind of a, a, a passion project on the, you know, literally nights, like 8 p.m. to 1 a.m., I would sit there and I would and I would dig into the mechanics of how this how the social ecosystem was facilitating the amplification of this kind of misinformation. And this was in late 2014, early 2015. Um, what wound up happening was as I wrote about it, the Obama administration reached out. And they said, you know, some of the work that you're doing is related to some of the work that we are trying to do with ISIS, because around the same time, people were beginning to map ISIS networks and realizing that social platforms like Twitter were a great recruiting hub uh, for extremists. And people were also beginning to realize that there was potential for radicalization pathways uh, through things like YouTube videos. Uh, and that almost universally across all of the platforms, there was this belief that freedom of expression necessitated them to allow this content not only to exist, uh, but to be amplified as well. So I wound up working with the U.S. Digital Service for a couple of weeks, kind of replicating that process of how do we detect this kind of misinformation? How do we identify the clusters and pathways uh, through which it spreads? And then thinking about how do we counter it? What are, what are the approaches to countering it, either through counter messaging or through uh, something more like thinking about how the platforms choose what we see? And so there were kind of approaches on both sides. To what extent would you prevail upon the platforms to change what they were surfacing? Um, you know, had to minimize the ISIS recruiters on Twitter, for example, uh, versus U.S. government and its allies uh, and advocacy groups and civil society groups in region running counter messaging campaigns to try to diminish the appeal of ISIS. So I wound up really just, you know, at some point your night side job, <laughs> I guess, begins to, uh, to, to dominate your time. And that was kind of what happened for me. I just, I just felt like I had uh, found something that I thought about 24 seven. And I, you know, at the time in 2015, 2016, it wasn't like there were organizations dedicated to studying this. I think we were some of the earlier people flagging it and raising it as an issue uh, and the infrastructure to support research and really kind of came a bit later. So Renee, that was fascinating. What I find so interesting about your story and the story of so many other top researchers on disinformation is that you come into this problem almost by accident from your own personal experience, um, in your case, with the anti-vax campaigns in California. And it happens so early on before this really becomes 
an issue that so many of us um, or so many people in the field really start focusing on. Also, that's because that's kind of, kind of how I came into caring about disinformation issues around the same time, but from a very different lens, also around 2014. But uh, because of the kind of uh, Russian disinformation that we saw a target against Ukraine in late 2013, early 2014, at the beginning of, of, of the Russian war um, against Ukraine at the time. And I wanted to get you to talk, maybe carry the thread forward just a little bit, because, you know, it's 2020 now, which is shocking to say. And you've been working on this either from a personal side and interest and now obviously professionally for six years. And I think the conversation has moved a lot, particularly on the public health question. Uh, But could you give us a better sense of where do you think we are now when it comes specifically to that original issue you were concerned about on anti-vax? You know, have we been successful in mounting a campaign to counter uh, and resist and build resilience against this kind of, you know, really, really critical and urgent issues around disinformation that re- that cause people to get sick and in some cases die as well. Yeah, I think the to carry the thread forward to um, kind of the actually link what you're saying with Russia also, when we were doing that ISIS work, this was October 2015, there were already people in the room as we were thinking about what was the whole of government, whole of society response to this stuff going to be, Russia's activities were already known and they were being discussed in those conversations in those rooms as well. Uh, And that's because, you know, even the public knew, right? Adrian Chen's article on the IRA came out in, I think, June of that year. So people who were paying attention uh, had begun to realize that as we kept saying over and over again in these meetings, Uh, This is not a narrative issue. This is a systemic manipulation issue. This is an issue where anyone anywhere with any kind of message can manipulate a series of amoral and effective but dumb algorithms to create a perception of widespread popular uh, belief, right? widespread popular consensus. And so there was already that link, that recognition that state actors could do this as well perhaps far better than, in fact, uh, terrorist organizations or uh, small ideologically motivated groups because they, of course, had better resources. Uh, and then that theory was, in fact, borne out in the research that we wound up doing in 2017 as we began to realize the full extent of Internet research agency activities. So for, again, for a while, I would say in 2017, that was where you started to see a lot more appetite towards creating a much stronger response to what was happening. It was no longer acceptable to just say, well, yeah, there are some people who are wrong online, which was what the original kind of dismissive response had been. Um, It was the realization that, yes, the small group of people who were (laughs) wrong online could, in fact, when they were the dominant voice in the room, capitalize on things like Facebook's ad infrastructure, which had targeting capabilities for anti-vax interests listed in the interests field. And so there were all of these like bizarre inadvertent ways in which um, the system was designed to to facilitate this kind of this kind of thing. And so the real concern at the time was how do we balance freedom of expression? Right. Your right to hold a viewpoint, however wrong. Uh, with, and your right to express that viewpoint uh, on a platform that is trying to commit itself to free expression. And how do you balance that with the downstream harms of 
manipulation and manipulative distribution potentially becoming the way in which that viewpoint reaches the public. And so one of the things that, uh, that I spent a bit of time trying to do was drawing that distinction between your right to expression, your right to say a thing, and the platform's commitment to host that thing with the inadvertent algorithmic distribution. So what I mean by that is you can create a page and you can create content saying this incorrect you know, piece of health misinformation, but the platform is under no obligation to give you the free dissemination or the, the free kind of algorithmic lift that it was inadvertently providing by recommending your content in the recommendation engine or by surfacing your account in suggested accounts to follow. So there is, you know, you, you can have this return almost to the earlier days of the internet where anybody could set up a blog, put something up on the internet, and their friends and family and fans could go and find that blog and read that content. But there was no, at the time, there wasn't that same degree of, of algorithmic lift provided by the platform deciding that it was going to surface the most sensational content possible. So one of the kind of policy interventions that the platforms have been thinking about now has been, in fact, just that. The idea of what if these groups exist on Facebook, but Facebook removes them from the recommendation engine. And so does that, um, the other thing that Facebook has done is it said that it will no longer accept uh, advertising dollars for health misinformation. So if you want to promote quackery, uh, Facebook <laughs> has made the decision that it you know, won't accept your business, which in my opinion is a you know, perfectly reasonable thing for a private company to do. That gets to, I think, the big question that I've had throughout all these conversations, which is why now? Um, as you say, people have been wrong on the internet and they've been using algorithms to kind of spread their views on the subject since there have been algorithms. But why do you think it is that sort of 2016, 2017, 2018 has come to be seen as this turning point in terms of people paying attention to the problem broadly and also willingness on the part of major stakeholders to take action or think seriously about taking action to address it. On the disinformation in general front, I would say that it's really been the you know Russian activity in the election making it and not only in the election, of course, like the election is the piece that attracts everyone's attention, but the realization that the Internet Research Agency ran a multi-year influence operation completely undetected uh, in which they amassed, you know, hundreds of thousands of followers and hundreds of millions of engagements really is a, you know, it, it does begin at that point, I think, to capture both the public's interest, the government's interest, of course, uh, in terms of uh, foreign interference, uh, and then the media's interest. Right. And in which the media really was instrumental uh, in, in calling attention to these to these spaces that went largely unnoticed that had existed for quite some time. So that's on the disinformation front. I think it's really the impetus of the kind of political situation following uh, in, in, in 2017 in particular, the investigations into Russia make people realize how vulnerable the system is to manipulation. And then with the health side of it, the misinformation side, I think what you start to see is the realization as people begin to think about the impact of propaganda, the impact of influence, and then as they see in the real world the manifestation of measles outbreaks everywhere, for example. I mean, in Samoa, 75 children or so died in the last month 
Uh, and a lot of the, you know, a lot of the work that the government of Samoa and, and outside academics have been doing is really tracing the spread of anti-vaccine narratives and anti-vaccine influencers who target those communities. And so you do start to see this question as, as we look at uh, anti-vaccine information in particular, there's a manifestation in the real world in the form of all of a sudden these outbreaks happening, particularly in targeted communities. The Somali community in Minnesota was an example uh, domestically in the US. So at this point, people begin to realize, I think, that there are consequences to the pervasive, unchecked dissemination of propaganda and nonsense. Uh, and that's where you start to see much more of uh, the public sentiment really shifting and saying, okay, maybe it's time we think about what our information environment is doing to us societally. And that's where I think that th those two kind of like parallel threads really came together. And then I think also there's the, the degree of informedness, of course, of Congress, uh, because Representative Schiff uh, did weigh in on some of the health misinformation stuff. He wrote a letter to Facebook, to YouTube, and to Amazon. I believe it was those three, asking them, what are you doing about this? And so you did start to see this series of congressional hearings touching on various facets of the problem and really kind of going deep into these individual ones, which led, of course, to more press and more social awareness. It strikes me that you've you've described, as you say, a kind of a movement from something that seems consequence free, sort of constrained to the digital realm, moving into the quote unquote real world. And then people sort of have this moment of, you know, gravity acts, you fall to earth, you realize what power you have. But there also is a, a sort of a movement from thinking of these things as personal beliefs, even personal harms to understanding them on a societal or political level, right? The example of health, I find your work on that so fascinating because it's connected to things that Americans at least tend to think of as sort of very, very personal, very tightly held, you know, motherhood, the home, something where you don't want sort of social intrusion. And then what Russia does and what, uh, you know, measles outbreaks and those kinds of things do is move that from this tightly constrained intimate space into the space of of politics. I mean, most obviously in terms of the 2016 election, but it sort of becomes something that is appropriate to talk about on a systemic level and as something that affects the group as a whole. Well, and I think the the value of social networking, right, in its in its idealized form, was always to connect people to other people and to help people find folks like them, right? And so it kind of reshaped, uh, it kind of divorced us from geography, which is interesting, because there's none of the real world social norms and constraints. Uh, like a lot of those have been are eliminated, in fact, by by the way that we engage online. Uh, and so there's a a new kind of online first social experience that a lot of people are having. I know, you know, just my own personal experience when I was uh, when I became a mom, none of my physical real world friends <laughs> had kids yet. And so I did find these groups very, very helpful, right? I didn't know anything about raising a baby. And so I felt like, well, if I'm gonna muddle through, 
I can find other people who are online like me who are also muddling through. And that's a hugely valuable reason why people go and spend so much time in these spaces. And so I think that when we think about social network kind of reformation, if you will, this this point that we're at now where we think about we had this sort of long free-for-all driven in part by what I would say is a lot of idealism. And then we realized that the worst aspects of human behavior are also amplified in these groups and online. So are there ways, are there new norms that emerge for the social space? Are there, you know, what are the new regulations that emerge uh, to think about how downstream societal harms are mitigated? Uh, And that's where I think that's sort of where we are today, right? What is the, what are the guardrails that we put on what is effectively like the new information environment? And right now we're, it's really Social platforms are extremely distinct in how participatory they are, right? So for the first time, the information environment and the social environment are almost, you know, there's 100% overlap there. People are getting their information where they're socializing and getting it from the people they're socializing with. And that, you know, there's always been some extent of that, but then there were also the the more traditional media ecosystem. You still got your information from the news, from your newspaper, and then you had your social chatter. Those two things have largely merged at this point. It's all happening in the same space. So Renee, since you already put different kinds of actors on the table and the kinds of conversations that were happening very early on, I think before this really exploded into the public conversation and disinformation about Russian activities and now increasingly other state actors in this space and the kinds of resources these actors can bring to information manipulation versus kind of smaller uh, groups or even groups uh, like like ISIS, these non-state actors. I wanted to kind of tease that out a little bit because I was really fascinated uh, with a report that you published recently in your hat at Stanford on the GRU operations. The GRU is, of course, the uh, Russian military intelligence unit that has been identified by multiple uh, governmental and non-governmental uh, reports as one of the key agencies that was involved not just in the cyber attack, the hack attack on the DNC and the Hillary Clinton campaign, but that was also running in parallel its own information operation that seemed to be happening on a different track than what the internet research agency was doing, which was um, the troll farm that we all uh, love to talk about, know too much about these days. Um, So I wanted to get you to talk a little bit about how even the same state actor, in this case, Russia, uses different techniques and how much impact do they actually get? Because I think uh, my frustration is conversation around Russia specifically, but now I see it seeping into conversations around China and other disinformation actors is confusion as to how we understand the impact um, of these operations. And I thought one of the most interesting findings from your GRU investigation that spent multiple years was how low impact that specific operation was and how it followed a very different kind of uh, strategic approach in the IRA, for example. Could you talk a little bit about how do we actually understand impact in this context? And what is your thinking in a operation like the GRU on why should people care if it has such low impact and didn't really have the ability to attract eyeballs? Yeah, that's a great question. So it did attract eyeballs, actually, but in a very different way. So 
let me walk through really briefly. I would say when we talk about the Internet Research Agency, we're talking about mimetic propaganda. We're talking about long-term multi-year influence. Uh, we're talking about content that is inherently participatory. The entire point of creating those memes is to get people to share them. And so it's a very social first operation where the entire goal is to create information, to create emotionally resonant content and to make people want to share it. And so that's where you see all of the memes that we've all seen so many of. And when we talk about the hundreds of millions of engagements, we're talking about real Americans who saw the content, it made them feel a certain way and they shared it. So that's how the IRA operated. When we look at the GRU, we see a very different strategy. The GRU, just for kind of historical perspective, uh, is Russian military intelligence. And so what we saw from Russian military intelligence, as opposed to the IRA, which is this sort of modern, millennial-driven, uh, almost a social media marketing type approach to content creation, what we see from the GRU is the internet evolution of old KGB tactics, so the old Soviet propaganda and manipulation tactics. And so there's a kind of a different history there. It's a, you know, a group that has institutional experience in psychological operations. It has experience in narrative propaganda. And so what the GRU does is it creates narrative, long form narrative content that actually contains information, information in the form of facts. Some of those facts are actual facts. Some of those facts are, of course, fabricated, misleading, you know, just completely uh, made up out of whole cloth in some cases. But so what you see there is it's not creating emotionally resonant memes. It's creating long form analysis about things like the conflict in Syria or conflicts in we saw operations in uh, the Balkans. We saw operations in the United States. We saw operations in Ukraine. And so you see this content uh, and what it's it's being created not for the purpose of being shared in a peer to peer capacity. It's created in hopes that journalists will pick it up. So you have narrative propaganda with a media manipulation, kind of uh, media first strategy as opposed to social first. And so the fact that their Facebook posts don't get hundreds of millions of engagements doesn't actually mean that the operation is a failure, because what we see instead is we see the articles, which are created by fake people, fake journalists that they've you know, fabricated, uh, getting picked up by sites like Veterans Today and Global Research and some, you know, uh, what are some of the others? Counterpunch picked up a couple. I think before it's news picked up a few. There's a diagram in the report on Stanford Internet Observatory's website where you can see the dozens and dozens of, uh, of news organizations that picked up this content. And they run the content as bylined contributed content by people who don't actually exist. But what happens is the audience members for those sites engage with and see the content and share it. So one of the things that we have as an ongoing research project is we're looking at those articles that they created, particularly the ones for a fabricated uh, media organization slash think tank called Inside Syria Media Center. We're looking at how the Inside Syria Media Center long form narratives spread across the internet, particularly where even if they had zero engagements on their content on their own Facebook page, when it was republished to Veterans Today or Global Research or one of these other entities, those sites had engagement from their own standing audiences. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that was fascinating. And I th again, I think what's interesting is also that I think in the public debate on these issues, 
Uh, we often lump every all the different actors together in under this label of quote-unquote disinformation or whatever we call information manipulation. And we don't really look at the different strategy and tactics deployed to reach very specific audiences. And to my mind, I think what has been so interesting is to better understand the strategic intent of these disinformation actors like the GRU and in which ways they have been successful and which ways they failed. Because I, I think, again, this is such a nuanced and complex issue, even when it comes to talking about just one actor, you know, Russia, and the agencies involved, uh, which is the GRU and the IRA, and then the different audiences they're targeting and the different ways they're doing that. Um, and then from that, trying to ascertain what the impact was. And I think this is also why, to my mind, it's been such a complex issue for just a general audience to really understand um, and also for our policymakers to really understand and start to get a handle on. So I want to maybe switch us to talking a little bit about looking ahead. You know, since we are early on in 2020, uh, one thing that uh, we've been thinking about is what kind of fresh hell awaits us as we look forward. And so be keen as someone who is so deep on these issues and who's seen uh, different kinds of actors uh, over the years, uh, different kinds of issues play out in this space. What you see as kind of some of the greatest challenges facing us still this year, um, whether that be from the perspective of researchers and some of the challenges you might face as a researcher and as a researcher and would like to see some more attention to, or whether that be how governments are thinking about this or even companies, because I know you work, you know, you have to in this field work very closely with, with the companies to a certain extent because they hold all the information. So what do you think awaits us in 2020? Yeah, so we're seeing some really interesting things uh, happening with a third set of Russian-affiliated actors recently, Yevgeny Prigozhin, who is also affiliated with the Internet Research Agency. So I would say, you know, the Internet Research Agency created people who looked like us, right? So the content came from, uh, the content that was pushed to Americans or to Ukrainians came from people who they thought were very similar to them, right? The GRU created fake people who were, kind of fake authority figures. So they were able to say things like, according to Inside Syria Media Center experts, comma, and then whatever uh, whatever kind of nonsense propaganda about Syria they wanted to put out. And so they created this impression of authority to go along with that. So we've seen those two things. And now what we're seeing is just the franchising of operations to real people who actually are real locals. And it's unclear if they know who they're working for. And so what I mean by that is the uh, Wagner Group and some of Yevgeny Prigozhin's other entities have been implicated in running uh, influence operations across the continent of Africa. I think it was in eight different countries. And what they did to execute on a lot of those strategies, which were a sort of hybrid, you know, they had some of the mimetic propaganda IRA style, they had fake news organizations, you know, sort of GRU style. Uh, But what they did was they hired locals to actually run them. So they put out job postings for uh, for folks in Sudan uh, who wanted to write for these newspapers. 
they seem to have hired local uh, local page administrators. And indications from the research that we did on that, which is up on our website, indicate that some of those individuals may have been social media managers. So there's this trend towards recruiting locals, which makes it very difficult for a platform company to know whether they're dealing with an inauthentic actor, right? It's not like the IRA where the person doesn't exist or the GRU where the person doesn't exist. Uh, this is a different thing where the person, in fact, very much does exist. And then there's the other challenge where, as we think about mercenary organizations in general, we're seeing that trend globally. And it started years ago. It's not that it's new. I mean, we've known about Philippines and Israeli, you know, not government sponsored, of course, just uh, entities within the Philippines and within Israel that sell these services. And we've begun to see that expand out. Uh, it appears that Prigozhin's entities are running that same kind of uh, mercenary for hire strategy. We've seen it come out of Saudi Arabia recently. Some of our research was on uh, SMAAT, SMAT, an, an organization that it appears the government of Saudi Arabia used as a contract organization to run uh, Twitter campaigns. So there is this trend towards hiring either third-party marketers or recruiting directly from among local populations, which obscures the origin of the actors involved in the content and makes it a lot harder for platforms to decide to take it down. So I just want to double down on what you just described, Renee, because uh, to me, one of the greatest innovations in, in this disinformation space as we look at how adversarial tactics and strategies evolve has been this outsourcing and franchising to local actors who are not always conscious participants in their own activities. Like you said, they don't always know who they're working for. And we saw the Russians test this in Ukraine. Um, and then we saw them really carry it forward in Africa. And again, I mean, I think this is so critical because of the attribution question. And in, in this way, I think the information space we're dealing with is so similar to some of the questions we have in the more um, traditional cyber domain about attribution questions. And if we don't have you know, a smoking gun attribution, then what can we really say about who's to blame here? And it really just obfuscates our ability uh, to do research, but also to craft policy. And I wonder how over time uh, researchers will have to adjust so that companies will de develop more advanced and savvy investigative tools and techniques uh, for identifying these kinds of campaigns. I think one frustration for me um, has also been that at the end of the day, those of us outside the platforms don't really have a sense, and I don't know if the platforms themselves have a good sense, to be honest with you, of how much of a problem can they actually see, right? So now we have very consistent takedowns from Facebook, uh, Twitter, of coordinated authentic behavior, but I still don't have a good sense of, you know, is that 5% of the problem? Is that 50% of the problem? And I don't think the companies do either, and I think this is a big part of, of the questions that uh, we still have around impact um, as it becomes more difficult to attribute some of these behaviors. Quinta? Yeah, I think that, you know, we, we've been talking about this from the platform's point of view and from the researcher's point of view. But one of the, the questions I've had in mind, Renee, building off your comments about how the GRU campaign worked is the role of the media, the role of the sort of traditional gatekeepers here. And as you point out, the GRU campaign was arguably successful in large part because 
seeding that information to the press worked. The press reported on it. And so as we head into 2020, as we're sort of facing this information environment that is still plagued by disinformation and misinformation, albeit in sort of different shifting forms, do you think the the American press at least is any better positioned to tackle this problem in 2020? Uh, I don't actually know. Um, I, I don't, comma, no. Um, the, the thing that we saw with the GRU, uh, per what Alina just said, is that they really did target the media. And it's, I think, challenging for media because someone somewhere will report on it, right? The idea that we're not going to see these stories hit the press is just not true. It's not, it's not realistic because you know, media now, there's this fragmentation, there's what we can call the sort of fourth estate, um, established um, media that's been around for quite some time, you know, more sophisticated journalistic practices and ethics. There's the fifth estate, which is the citizen driven media, citizen journalism is a phrase that we hear used for it a lot. Um, They too involve themselves in investigations and break stories. There's really this kind of extreme decentralization in in that facet of how we think about where we get our media. And with social media, dissemination is available to all. And so the, you know, so it's not realistic to expect that media wouldn't cover it. But where I think there's not very much preparedness is when you ask how they will cover it, how they will contextualize it. You know, one of the things that we saw with the GRU operation it was remarkably successful was, of course, the the hacks, the DC Leaks, um, DC Leaks, Gucci for Two, who did try to put their content out on Facebook. It got almost no social lift on Facebook. The lift came when they began DMing journalists and then when they brought in WikiLeaks, right? And that's where you start to see, that's when it goes, uh, goes really mainstream. That's when it starts to get attention. And then anytime they want to shift the news cycle, anytime they want to shift coverage, they can just drop a new tranche of documents. Uh, which, of course, are going to get covered. But a lot of the coverage was really around the most sensational, you know, salacious bits of information. If you think back to that time, I'm sure a lot of people remember things like, you know, spirit cooking, the weird conspiracy theories that then kind of launched Pizzagate. So in some ways, the GRU hacks did quite a bit uh, to push out these bizarre conspiracy theories that then really took hold in American society and kind of um, metastasized. So I think it's it's hard to, <laughs> and yet they had like zero Facebook likes, right? So when we think about impact, engagements are not the same as impact. And and I when I say that, I mean that both in terms of like, you can have no engagements and profound impact, as we see with the GRU hacks. And then you can also have hundreds of millions of engagements. And there's really the question that remains for social science research around is it impact if it doesn't change someone's mind? Is it impact if it doesn't change their behavior? How do we think about quantifying our ideas of how pervasive exposure to repetitive propaganda impacts someone and how do we measure that? And I think that some folks are dismissive because we don't have quantitative data on it. Uh, other folks believe that we're never going to have any kind of quantitative ability uh, to measure that. And that's kind of an ongoing debate in the field right now. As far as your question about attribution, there's a couple things there. First, one of the things I think we'll see the platforms move towards, or I hope we see them move towards, is something that's a little bit more like assessments of behavior and assessments of dissemination patterns. Like, 
independently of who is doing it, there are certain particular types of dissemination, particularly things that mimic spam tactics that we can just say are not something that we want tolerated on our platforms, right? And so I think that that's a narrative agnostic way to look at particular types of behavior and without necessarily knowing who the actor is, maybe to say these particular types of dissemination tactics, you know, botting, automation, uh, excessive cross-posting, spam tactics are just not something that we want the platforms either amplifying or tolerating, right? So there's some uh, some options around using behavior as as the number one signal for deciding how to handle these things. And then there's the second piece, which is when we do want to make that assessment of attribution, I think it has to be a very collaborative effort. And we've made some headway in that direction over the last, I would say, two years, maybe. So 2018, 2019 was, uh, particularly 2019 was when that started to really come about. You know, the the work that we just did on SMOT, this, the Saudi, uh, you know, kind of bot farm, we did that, we provided some, we provided an assessment of what we saw in the data set concurrent with Twitter releasing the data set to the public. So in that particular case, it's an example of here is what a first pass uh, by a research organization believes we're looking at. Twitter puts out its own post uh, saying what they think happened, uh, and then the data set is released to the public so that any research organization anywhere, even just individuals, uh, can get in there and look and see for themselves and find new things. And using our assessments of, um, you know, what we'd call like TTP, like tactics, techniques, and procedures, uh, we can develop an understanding of how these actors and adversaries operate so that we can make at least an educated guess, appropriately caveated with our degree of confidence uh, much the way you would do that type of attribution work in cybersecurity. All right. Well, now we know uh, what to keep an eye out for over the coming months. Let's leave it there. Uh, Renee, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to the 10th episode of Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast's new miniseries on disinformation. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed. We'll be back with another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Thanks this week to Renee DeResta. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineers were Michaela Fogel and Hadley Baker, and our producer is Jen Pacha Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast on the podcasting app of your choice. And as always, thanks for listening.